brought to you by Business Fights Poverty. Hello and welcome to Business Fights Poverty Spotlight Interviews. I am Katie Heisen, Director of Thought Leadership. Each week, these interviews provide you with the insights from a different perspective of Business Fight Poverty Network, giving you first-hand understanding of how businesses and others are working on some of the world's biggest social challenges. I don't know about you, but my idea of looking after myself before the COVID-19 global pandemic and since this deadly virus has plagued our planet is dramatically different. It used to be that I indulged in the odd foot scrub or took the occasional paracetamol. Now I consume vitamin D religiously, amongst other things, just in case it may boost my immune system and hopefully avoid needing to see a doctor for any reason. My guest on this podcast tells me this isn't unusual. And in fact, we should all be doing more to self-care. Meet Daniela Foster. She is the VP and Global Head of Public Affairs, Science and Sustainability with Bayer's Consumer Health Organization. Self-care may be part of Daniela's business, but it is something she has been keenly looking into as well. During our conversation today, Daniela is going to share more on new research she has been doing on self-care, why it isn't just about the individual, and what we can expect the future of self-care to look like if we all just work together. Daniela, welcome. And Daniela, I want to start our conversation today by understanding a bit more about what self-care actually means and why is it important. So look, I'm, I'm so glad you started with that question. So oftentimes when we think about self-care, I think everyone has a different conception of what it is. And there is actually an official definition of self-care. So the World Health Organization defines self-care as the ability of individuals, families, and communities to promote health, prevent disease, maintain health, and cope with illness and disability with or without the support of a healthcare provider. And that last part is really critical because self-care is really about empowering the individual to take control of their own health. And when most people hear the term self-care, they typically think of pampering, right? Like getting a massage or a manicure. And those can be great things, but self-care is really about taking control of your health. And when we talk about self-care, they typically, typically self-care really falls into three primary buckets. So one, you're doing self-care to maintain or improve your health, your well-being throughout the course of your life. So really vitality and prevention. And then two, you may be doing self-care to self-manage minor ailments. So it could be that you're getting an over-the-counter treatment, right? So a good example, even before the pandemic, We've known for many years that access to preventative care and basic health literacy can reduce the need for many people to visit a healthcare provider. So for example, this really allows doctors to focus on people who need their help most. And I think even just about an example that may resonate with many of us, I'm guessing many of you suffer from seasonal allergies. I think many of us are guilty of not knowing whether we have allergies or something else, and we go to the doctor to find that out. I know I've done this before. So for many people, going to the doctor can mean missing out on work, particularly if you're an hourly waged earner and you may not be getting paid for that time. So the Center for Workforce Health and Performance in the U.S. 
believes that if more people self-treated, including trying over-the-counter allergy medication, for example, this could result in a $45 billion that's saved from unneeded doctor visits, among other costs. So it would also result in an additional 130 million more days worked, which means more money in someone's pocket. So I've seen similar statistics in a number of other countries, but overall we know this can help alleviate the burden on the healthcare system too. And then the third area why people may self-care is to manage, delay, or even prevent lifestyle diseases. So whether that's preventing things like heart attacks, stroke, diabetes, or even preventable cancers. So Daniela, the global pandemic has highlighted global pressures on our healthcare systems. What trends should we be expecting and preparing for? So look, I I think the importance of access to self-care has really hit home for many of us because of the pandemic. I know it's hit home for myself. And, you know, many people are now facing a new health reality. and, And we're We're seeing this in many different ways. So some people are facing challenges because they've lost their job or they're indefinitely homebound. Others are now living even further below the poverty line than they were before. And what I'm mindful of is that back in 2017, the World Health Organization predicted that if the world continued on the same trajectory, less than half of the world's population would have access to basic and essential healthcare services by 2030. So given the state of the world today, unless we take significant and immediate action, I mean, these challenges of access are going to get worse again before they get better. So in the wake of COVID, it's become apparent that access to self-care needs to be a key solution when we think about healthcare and the healthcare continuum. So in our work together to develop the insights reports, I think we saw a few self-care trends that have emerged. So one is virtual care. Telehealth, it's not new, but fewer people were using it before the pandemic. And I think this is an example of where we see almost a once in a decade opportunity of uh, technology accelerating and being widely socially adopted. And we've seen this in the midst of the pandemic, and we're starting to see more healthcare providers offer remote options for care. We're also seeing many health insurance and managed care systems encouraging this option, accepting this option, reimbursing this option. And what I think we're going to start seeing in 2021 is more evaluation of patient satisfaction and outcomes and finding ways to improve quality gaps. So we'll see more tools become readily available for healthcare providers to ensure you're getting the same care virtually as you would in the office. A second aspect is really health ownership. We are all trying to stay healthy, and I think we'll continue to see a shift towards more health ownership. So people became acutely more aware of their own health and hygiene and the impact that it also has on others and on the community. So I think we'll see that continue even after the vaccines are widespread. And this is truly the heart of self-care. People will continue some of the habits, the good healthy habits that they formed during the pandemic to continue to take care of themselves and those that are immunocompromised. So this includes things like they're keeping their immune system healthy. So by taking vitamins, eating healthier, exercising, um, paying attention to hand washing, and even continuing to wear a mask. So these are all aspects of like individual health ownership that are going to continue. And then the third area is the rise in the community pharmacy and really also community retail health environments. 
So I think we'll continue to see an expansion of services offered at pharmacies and drugstores, places that are convenient. So in both developed and developing countries, many people have more access to these stores than they do a traditional health care provider. And we particularly see this in underserved communities. So I think we'll see the roles of pharmacists expand. We'll see the number of in-store healthcare providers or self-care solutions increase. And through these services, people will be able to really guide, they'll be guided in, in how to better take care of themselves at home and to be able to purchase self-care solutions right then and there when it's needed with some health education and literacy on how to use it. Daniela, these all make so much sense. They feel like they should be already normal activities. Why aren't we all already doing these things as standard? And what is holding us back from better self-care? So that's a good question. I think there's a few things holding us back. So self-care today doesn't play a critical role in the healthcare continuum. I think many people think of healthcare as the care that they get from a doctor or a hospital. So as a society, we don't put the same stock in the healthcare we give ourselves at home to prevent and to, to treat illness. We don't think of that as healthcare, but it is. I think there's a misnomer that self-care is no care, and that's completely false. Self-care is about taking control of your own health, which includes all the things you do at home with or without the supervision of a healthcare provider. I'd like to see more focus on how self-care plays a valuable role in someone's health. And you know, one of the things that I often think about is even if, let's say, we're being generous and, and, and you go to a doctor five times a year, which is probably more often than we, we typically go. So let's say you go five times a year and you spend maybe an hour with a, a doctor. That still leaves another 365 days out of the year where you're really doing self-care. So the self-care aspect is important. It's really critical that we empower people to do that. A great example is prenatal care. So of course, if you're pregnant, it's a good practice to see a doctor regularly. You have to monitor you and your baby. At the same time, there are important ways you can also take care of yourself too to ensure your health and the health of the baby. So many studies have shown and the World Health Organization recommends taking a multiple micronutrient supplementation or MMS. It's basically a formulation of essential vitamins and minerals that women need to ensure their health, a healthy pregnancy, a healthy baby. So taking a prenatal supplement can help prevent birth defects, including stunted growth, impaired neurological development and learning. And being born healthy, we know, improves your chances of being healthy throughout your life, which has an impact on how you perform in school, on your ability to work, which can also help someone get out of the cycle of poverty. But for many communities, they don't recognize the importance of this or they can't get access. So at Bayer, we're launching a program in partnership with NGOs that will help provide micronutrient supplementation intervention. We'll also help provide health literacy programs to underscore the value of prenatal care, and we'll work with governments to help create policies so this becomes a part of the healthcare system for generations. So that is one key aspect, sort of the health education and literacy. The other area in terms of what's needed is we need to create practical policies that expand access. 
So COVID-19 has placed a spotlight on persisting healthcare inequalities throughout the world. And the pandemic has really magnified problems in underserved communities. So in both developed and in developing nations, And we need to be in ways both visionary and pragmatic in order to create change quickly and in a sustained way. But in order to do this, lawmakers need to act as enablers and policy is key. It's oftentimes an unsexy but much needed solution. So lawmakers need to enact policies that facilitate change to be made more quickly and effectively. And policies should look at new approaches to behavior change when they're determining future investments in health promotion, prevention, and self-care initiatives. So effective educational campaigns centered on promoting the benefits of self-care are really few and far between, but we know they're critical. So there are not you know, really many noteworthy programs today that encourage people to take greater control of their own health or their family health. I think we're starting to see that change, actually, uh, with COVID-19. And I think in the future, to address this unmet need, authorities should really consider instituting health promotion programs that begin at a very early age, continuing through school and into the workforce. And then governments also need to do, uh, they don't need to do do these programs alone. They should really consider multi-stakeholder partnerships like public-private partnerships like the one I mentioned that we're just starting related to prenatal care. And I think we're also going to see more countries making an effort to create policy that will make healthcare accessible to all. And to the extent that they can do these things in partnership, I think that's also going to be critical. I wanted to pick up on your point about partnerships being critical. This podcast is called Business Fights Poverty. We care deeply about how businesses and other organisations could or should be taking action. How can we better work together? So first, I'd like to see more multi-stakeholder collaborations to begin with. I'm a huge fan of public-private partnerships, of uncommon collaborations. And I think the public sector is great at understanding the needs of communities. I think NGOs are um, often great at getting sort of on the ground to understand, for example, what vulnerable populations may need or, or the root causes of challenges. And then I think the private sector has the resources and innovation to actually make um, solutions scale. So when you look at all three of those sectors, when they come together, you start to, to see some powerful impacts. So The challenge, for example, of increasing access to self-care and and creating healthy habits is a big one. And that's one that no one entity can really achieve on their own. So you need public-private partnerships. You need sectors working together across sectorial lines to make things happen. And these types of collaborations focused on collective action are the way we'll make impact. So a good example of this is the work the Indonesian government has done with NGOs and other partners to commit to micronutrient access for their people. So we talked about this example in the toolkit a few years ago. The Indonesian government recognized that about a quarter of women of reproductive age had nutrient deficiencies and 30% of children were born stunted. So through partnership, they carved out significant resources from their health budget to help educate their communities about the importance of prenatal micronutrient supplementation. And they focused on interventions in the community where communities where it was needed most. 
So the partners were then able to help the government create infrastructure so they can embed this into their healthcare system. And now it's an ongoing program and it's part of their overall health continuum. So this is just one example, but I think it's a good one of the importance of working across sectors and looking at how you really can bake these aspects of self-care into the overall healthcare continuum. Wow, some great examples of real system change. Daniela, I want to get super practical now. From your experience, from the work that you've been doing, the research that you've been working on, what should the key actions be to make self-care happen at a system level? Our Joint Insight Report does a good job of pulling together the key actions that we should take to embed self-care into the healthcare continuum. So we've talked about many of these already during today's conversation, but I think they're worth reiterating. So there's four in in particular that I have in mind. So one, embedding self-care in public policy, we need, we need, absolutely need to develop a whole government approach to self-care. So think multiple arms of government working together to both educate and embed habits. We're working, for example, with the Global Self-Care Federation on a self-care readiness index that is going to help governments do just this. What are some of the practical tools and ways from a policy perspective of things that they need to do or or can work on to further embed self-care? Second is adopting a digital-first approach to healthcare. So we've already talked about the rise in telehealth and virtual in-home care. We also need to work on access to online services. So for instance, helping make broadband available in rural communities, that's also going to help open up more options for care. And it it can become, over time, a key tool for unlocking access to health as well, especially in areas where, in rural communities, they just may not have easy access to a doctor nearby. And then third, elevating the role of the community pharmacy in retail health. In many underserved communities, pharmacies and stores are more accessible than a traditional doctor, but in order for them to be successful, they need access to medical records and they need to have the ability to make referrals. So really getting these things to work together and talk to each other is going to be key. And then fourth, creating multiple uh, stakeholder partnerships to build a self-care movement. Like I mentioned before, I think collective action is going to be one of the key trends in 2021. We need to work together to build trust in and access to self-care and think about different places to communicate the value of caring for your everyday health. So like schools and workplaces. And then, you know, one additional build here, I think we need to come together on a common understanding of what self-care is, like the definition we talked about at the top of our talk today and also the value it plays in our lives. So I think that's, that's critical and it bear. I mean, we, we think of it as how you care for your health every day. We all need to be thinking about it similarly. Well, Daniela, we are all certainly navigating strange times. Um, this podcast, I'm always really keen to hear about the individual behind the work and hear from you. So on a personal note, what does self-care mean to you? And also, how do you stay resilient, keep going forward in these crazy, crazy world times that we're living in? Yeah. So what what I try to put into perspective are the things we've learned from COVID. So we are literally living history right now. And the unique thing about the pandemic is we're all in this, right? It knows no boundaries. So we've all had to try to stay healthy, keep ourselves healthy, keep our families healthy and keep our communities healthy. And 
I'm struck by, you know, things we've also seen during the pandemic, sometimes small things. Like I remember seeing the singing in Italy early on and the hero welcomes for frontline workers in New York City. I think these are reminders that we're all part of a global community. And then on a personal note, when I, when I think about these times and reflect on this year, I, I also think about what I call like hashtag COVID silver linings, right? It's almost like a mental gratitude journal for myself. So this time has also meant things like uh, spending more time with family, preparing meals together, sitting down to meals together, thinking about our health, how we can eat better, exercise more. And the other thing that keeps me going is it's really about the small things these days. And I find a bit of comfort uh, in sort of the power of the human spirit and perspective. So on the note of perspective, sometimes after a particularly hard day, I go into things I'm grateful for. And these are like the very basics. So grateful to be alive, grateful to have food, to be able to get out of the bed in the morning, to, to see the sun. And, and then at the same time, I'm also reminded of Hans Rosling's book, Factfulness. It's a fantastic book. And what, what you sort of learn in that book is that for as bad as any given day can seem, we're all still living longer than we've ever lived. We're still healthier than we've ever been in the history of mankind. We're more educated than we've ever been. So even in the midst of, of a pandemic, I'd much rather be in a pandemic today in 2020 than in the midst of the Spanish flu in 1918. So I think these are reminders that as tough as this year has been, this is also an opportunity for us to look to the future and think about how we build back better. And it is conversations like these. It is tools like self-care. It is things like us all working together to form public-private partnerships and drive collective action that's going to help us rebuild better. So I'm looking forward to doing that with you and with all of the listeners. Well, Daniela, thank you so much for giving your time and your practical and positive insight. I'm really looking forward to hopefully rebuilding better. And if you like what you've heard today, please do rate and subscribe to us. I would also love to hear your feedback. So please do drop me a line at any time. I'm Katie at businessfightspoverty.org. Many thanks. Brought to you by Business Fights Poverty.